Hey y'all, it's your host Brandon here with a little heads up. Do the Work is a show that deals with heavy and at times traumatic moments around race and racism. So if you don't have the emotional space to hear these discussions right now, that's okay. You can always come back to this episode whenever you are ready. We hope that you take care of you. Oh, and one more thing. Sometimes we use adult language in this podcast, so if you got kids nearby, you might want to grab your headphones. All right, now let's get started. How did your people get here, to these United States of America? Did they cross a border or an ocean? Or were they native to this land long before colonizers showed up on their shores? Did they choose to come here to escape persecution or to find opportunity? Or were they brought here against their will and forced to endure manual labor or even slavery? For a lot of people of color and even some white folks, when our ancestors got to this country, they faced challenges, starting a new life, sometimes learning a new language. And for many of us, claiming the freedoms established by the Constitution Freedoms that at first were only afforded to property-owning white men, but which slowly over time are being won by the rest of us. And what this means is that as Americans, we often have different ideas about what this country stands for, what, quote, American values are. And that's because our ideas of these values are often shaped by the paths our ancestors had to take to get us to freedom. And these different ideas are not just between white folks and everybody else. They also exist within the POC community. And sometimes these differences can make it hard for us to understand each other's struggles. You know, to be able to sit at a counter and have a soda um, with, you know, non-Black people, to be able to go to a movie theater, to sit on a bus, like all of these things that are so basic, um, we were denied. Everything that we received along the way all came from protests. It came from fight. It came, that's how we got these things. You're listening to Do The Work, a show that untangles the uncomfortable, offensive, and sometimes downright racist moments that happen in our personal relationships. I'm your host, Brandon Kyle Goodman. On today's show, we're bringing on Damali and Rochelle, two women of color and best friends who saw a protest from two very different sides. That's after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back, y'all. So let's get to know Damali and Rochelle. 
Damali is Black and Rochelle is Filipina-American. They're both women of color living and thriving in New York City, honey, as entrepreneurs. So it's no surprise that they met at a program for women who are small business owners. Rochelle remembers the exact moment she met Damali. It was orientation. She was nervous. And it felt just like the first day of school. You get all jittery. You're not sure who's going to be there, who are you going to sit next to. And we're all trying to get our coffee. And we're in the coffee room. And suddenly they're like, all right, ladies, we're going to start now. And I turn around or she turned around, but I was holding a cup of coffee and we just went right into each other. <laughs> I got coffee all over her dress. Oh, oh my God. That is so embarrassing. <laughs> and Rochelle felt so, so bad. But it turns out, Damali's the kind of person who always keeps things classy. Damali is ever so gracious. And she was like, don't worry about it. I have a shawl. I'll be fine. I'll cover it up. And she was very nonchalant about it. I was so embarrassed. I was so sorry for her. But that's how we met. <laughs> In fact, Damali is so nonchalant that she doesn't even remember that Rochelle spilled coffee on her. <laughs> Did she? I totally don't remember that, um, but that's probably because I have kids who spill things on me all the time. You see, along with being a mom, Damali is a professional problem solver. She's an attorney and a mediator, and the two companies she's founded focus on conflict resolution in the corporate world and in people's personal lives. With conflict, I have a way of always seeing sort of the matrix. I think to have a way of kind of distilling issues, I can sort of say, oh, so these are the things that are going on and you know, let's talk about how we can address those things. As for Rochelle, she founded a startup that makes doing your laundry carefree and fun. When Damali met Rochelle, she was instantly struck by her go get em spirit. She's a hustler. She rolls her, her sleeves up and she hits the road. Rochelle says she gets this attitude from her upbringing. I was born into very humble circumstances in the Philippines. And coming to America was a dream come true for my family, uh, for my mother especially, who did not go to college. Um, you know, I was born to teenage parents. And so life was very uh, challenging from the beginning. So once we came to America, she made it very clear to me how lucky I am to have access to education, to have access to clean water, to have access to uh, safe housing. Because they were both ambitious women of color, successful entrepreneurs, and outgoing firecrackers with a sense of humor, Damali and Rochelle hit it off right away. Shortly after they met in 2019, they became fast friends and when the COVID-19 pandemic hit this year, they got even closer. They started FaceTiming every day. One time we talked for like three hours and we like brought different people into our, <laughs> into our FaceTimes. It was hilarious. And then we decided to have a couple of Instagram lives together. They started bringing other women entrepreneurs into their Instagram lives, and they ended up having thoughtful conversations about what lockdowns meant for small business owners like themselves. 
then they went a step further. Damali and Rochelle met virtually with members of Congress to share their experiences as small business owners trying to survive COVID. Through this work, Damali and Rochelle became like sisters, and they built each other up. They were getting through this pandemic together. But then, as we all know, in May, George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis, and protests ignited all over the country. Damali felt a lot of conflicting emotions, emotions that came up each time another shooting involving a Black person and the police consumed the news. You see, in her work as a mediator, she had trained NYPD officers in conflict resolution, and her father had worked as a police officer for nearly 30 years. I was just, I was just numb. I, I, I was so distraught. How am I supposed to reconcile the fact that I'm the daughter of a police officer, the fact that, you know, I've trained hundreds of police officers in New York, the fact that I'm a mother of, you know, black sons and a wife of a black, you know, man, and I wake up black every day. Like, how am I supposed to reconcile all of these things? It's a perpetual paradox. This is what was going through Damali's mind when Rochelle's name popped up on her phone. Rochelle had sent her a video. You see, Damali had left New York with her family because of COVID, and Rochelle was keeping her updated on what was happening in the city. So Damali opened the video on her phone and pressed play. There have been protests in the city the night before, and in the video, Damali could see Rochelle driving down the street past boarded up storefronts. So she's, she's driving, and as I'm looking at it, I kind of zoom in, because I'm like, what stores? And it's like Alexander McQueen. Saks Fifth Ave had plywood on the glass, like a barbed wire gate, and just guards standing outside of it. Like, I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. And it was so different from what I was used to. I sent it to, to Damali. And the text was like, this is like a war zone. The first thing that came to my mind was, not you, Rochelle. This isn't a war zone. War to me is looking at a man be killed on TV. What war definitely is not for me is showing me a picture of Fifth Avenue or a boarded up Alexander McQueen or Dior store. Do I feel bad that those things happen? 1000%. Like that, I'm sorry, that just isn't war. Now remember, Damali is a mediator. She keeps things cool and collected. So how she responded to Rochelle was very different from how she felt inside. Damali didn't tell Rochelle this in the moment, but she was surprised that one of her closest friends, an immigrant and a woman of color, could see the protests that way. I felt like I had been sort of like slapped in the face because I think I just thought that being, you know, an immigrant and coming here, um, that, you know, she would be more, she would have been more informed about how historically change has occurred in the United States to allow for things like better immigration laws, 
to use common, you know, parlance. I just thought Michelle was more woke than than them. After the break, we'll bring Damali and Rochelle together to talk about this moment of disappointment in their friendship and if they were able to overcome it. But first, we're going to dig deep into the history of civil rights in the U.S. and hear how Black Americans and Asian Americans have been in solidarity movements for decades. That's up next. Welcome back, y'all. Now, on this show, we've talked a lot about what white folks miss when it comes to race. But it isn't also, well, black and white. People of color miss things, too, and can have unconscious bias against people of other races. But a lot of the time, this ignorance is a result of not knowing our shared history. And so today, we've got a little history lesson for y'all. And let's be real, this is probably not the version of history you were taught growing up. My producers called up Diane Wong, a professor of political science at Rutgers University, to talk about how Asian folks and Black folks have stood together to fight for equality. But even though there has been solidarity between Black and Asian folks over the decades, Diane says that one major challenge that still exists today is anti-Blackness and anti-Black racism in Asian American communities. One reason for this is because many folks from places that were colonized by white Europeans were taught to believe that darker skin was inferior. And unfortunately, a lot of these cultures still believe that today. The reality is that anti-Blackness is so deeply ingrained into the collective memory of Asian immigrant communities in particular, right? So upon arrival here in the United States, but also from their experiences from the home country, right? To even begin talking about any kind of intersection solidarity really requires us to uncover, right, the root causes of where our anti-Black ideologies stem from, right? And they often stem from our family's complicated histories with colonialism, imperialism, war violence, um, right, labor exploitation, casteism. So let's dig into that complicated history now. Back in the late 1800s, tens of thousands of Chinese laborers arrived in the U.S. to work out west in gold mines and on railroads. But they faced a lot of backlash. Asian folks across America were portrayed as conniving and dangerous foreign thieves who stole jobs and wealth away from working Americans. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Anyway, this backlash led to the Chinese Exclusion Act, a law that virtually ended Chinese immigration for nearly a century. And this xenophobic feeling gave rise to a new term. The term yellow peril was coined by academics, politicians, to spread this fear, ideological fear, of specifically East Asians. Uh, and the uh, ideology, right, the stereotype of the of yellow peril is Asians take your jobs, they are violent, are militant, right, which is um, which has persisted across time in different formations. 
But then, in the 1960s and 70s, the civil rights movements led by Black activists began sweeping the nation. Different groups of people of color started organizing against racism and fighting for their rights, including Asian folks who felt oppressed by the U.S. There were many Asian American organizations inspired by, you know, the Black Panthers, such as the Red Guards. Not to be confused with other organizations of the same name, these Red Guards were a leftist group of activists who came out of San Francisco's Chinatown. The group adopted um, the style, right, the militancy, the language, and the politics that reflected the Black Panthers in an attempt to resist assimilation, right? And the Black liberation struggle also influenced some of the earlier leaders of the Asian American movement, like Yuri Kuchiyama, who connected her own family experiences of Japanese internment, right, during World War II to the Vietnam War and anti-imperialist struggles, um, to the plight of political prisoners, and to the fight for Black freedom. During this period, there was a lot of solidarity between Black and Asian American communities. Yuri Kochiyama, the Japanese-American activist Diane just mentioned, was close friends with Malcolm X. In fact, she was the woman who cradled his head in her hands while he died. The iconic photo of that moment was a powerful image that showed the solidarity between Black folks and Asian folks during that time. But as these movements for equality grew, white academics and politicians strategized to drive a wedge between the two communities. So, they created what we now know as the model minority myth. The stereotype that each person, each Asian, is smart, wealthy, hardworking, self-reliant, you know, obedient, uh, apolitical, right, and in never in need of any kind of assistance. Here's how that myth was perpetuated. White people saw that Asian Americans were people of color who had endured racism and discrimination in the United States, like restrictions on immigration and Japanese internment camps during World War II. So they believed that if Asian Americans could overcome racism, Black people should simply be able to do the same, right? No, uh-uh, not, no, not that, y'all. The reason the model minority archetype is a myth is because it just isn't true. Asian Americans are not a monolith. They're a widely diverse group of ethnicities, and lumping them all together erases the high levels of poverty and the barriers to wealth and education that many of these ethnic groups face. And so the model minority myth Right. Similar to Yellow Peril serves as a tool to pit Asian Americans against other communities of color. And Diane says it's really important for Asian Americans to challenge the model minority myth and address the anti-Blackness and anti-Black racism in their communities because... In many ways, Asian Americans owe it to Black activists who paved the way for Asian Americans to create our own narratives and to struggle for self-determination. Diane then brought up a recent example of the power that solidarity between Asian folks and Black folks can have in the fight for racial equality. 19-year-old Fong Lee, a Hmong American, was shot and killed by a Minneapolis police officer in 2006. But recently, his mother, Yua Vang, 
spoke out against police brutality at a rally calling for justice for George Floyd. She said, I want the family to know that I will grieve with them. I will continue to speak out and support the the voices that have been taken away from us. And it's in these moments of connection that freedom and dreams become possible that we move closer to Black liberation, which is liberation for all of us, right? Amen to that, honey. My thanks to Diane Wong, professor of political science at Rutgers University. I learned so much from Diane, y'all, and I hope you did too. Next, I wanted to speak to Debbie Irving, our in-house educator, about Damali and Rochelle and the implications of calling a protest a war zone or riot. Hi, Debs. How you doing, Brandon? I'm good. I'm so happy to have you back. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Well, let's jump right in as we do. So uh, the way Rochelle describes New York City looking like a war zone reminds me what I've heard from a lot of people who call the Black Lives Matter protests riots. Now, we know that words are important. So why do some folks say these are protests and others say these are riots? Well, riot implies that something has gone terribly out of control. Yes. and. Uh, often the word riot in the United States for me seems to be associated with the word race. Yes. So I think when there's something racial going on and, um, and things begin to look or actually, you know, be out of control, the word riot gets applied. Yes. There's never any conversation about why people are protesting or the fact that uh, the protests for hours and hours and hours are peaceful. And I think the problem for me is that riot always uh, comes off as though that was the intention. So so one of the first things I'm thinking about is what gets called a riot and what doesn't. So I live in Boston. We are a sports fanatic uh, city. And Mm -hmm. after the big wins, we have um, lots of people in the streets. They tip over cars. They're drunk. You know, it's oh yeah, and and you know why isn't that called a riot? It's never that's called a celebration. A riot. That's a celebration. That's that the, is a celebration <laughs> that got a little rowdy. That's a rowdy <laughs> celebration. Yes, and yet the impact is the same in that property is damaged, um, and sometimes people are hurt. Mm-hmm. Police come, but these are white people. Yes. And that's so, a key difference. That's and that's a huge difference. So it's not yeah. a riot. It doesn't feel like a big threat. I mean, that is. I mean, plainly, that is really the difference. And when we're, especially when we're talking about Black Lives Matter protests versus like sports, quote unquote, celebrations, is that the demographic, the racial demographic, is different, and so they get treated differently. One gets handled as like, oh, they're just up and whatever, they're happy, and the other is like, they need to be controlled and tamed and. And, and so there, there, there's a, a different level of force that comes down. There's a different uh, level of empathy. It almost seems like people are more upset about a store being vandalized and looted than the killing of Black lives, which is obviously just insane and wild to me. People can turn on their TV and they can see shots of, mm. um, you know, people breaking into stores. 
and that feels very scary and out of control. And, and But we're not seeing the hours of peaceful protest. Right. I don't know if you saw that video that went viral by, by um, she's a young adult author, Kimberly Jones, called um, How Can We Win? Yes, I do know this video. Kimberly Latrice Jones. Yes. Yes. She's phenomenal. Yes. She has this great analogy in there about um, if the United States is a monopoly board, you know, white people have been playing from the beginning. Not all white people. Some white people have come along later, but the rules are different for white people. Right. And, you know, let's say everybody became um, equally free and liberated today. Well, we still got all these white people with these houses and hotels and piles of cash. And, and other people are starting with nothing. Yes. You know, the big point in her video is how can we win? Like, we get blamed for looting. We get blamed for protesting. We get blamed for not making enough money. But it's all tied to the same system of to oppression. To the same system, yes. And what I've been saying all summer uh, and will continue to say is you have to get curious about, okay, why are these people out in the street? What is the inciting incident? And if you just do a little bit of research, you learn that another Black person was killed. And so then you realize that riot is not the correct label here. What's happening is people are dying and they don't want to die. So how do you recommend we talk about movements driven by Black Lives Matter or any uh, group of people of color? Like, what should we keep in mind when we talk about these movements? Well, I'm going to go with your uh, Dr. Curiosity advice. So, um, you know, doing our research who are the people? You know, what What does a Black Lives Matter meeting look like? What mm. What are the end goals? Who are mm. these people as individuals? Who are the leaders? Yes. When I was growing up, the Black Panthers were in their heyday. And I remember my, I remember finding like Time Magazine or Life Magazine. And, you know, it was Huey Newton and Bobby Seals, who I had no idea who they were. There were two black guys with guns on the cover. And mm-hmm. I found it, like, upside down in the trash. And and I asked my mother why it was in the trash. And she said it was just too scary. She didn't want anybody seeing it. And so mm. I immediately made this association that I carried with me for decades that the Black Panthers were a scary terrorist organization. Come mm. to find out, yeah, they carried guns. Um, they had a whole ideology around that. They were They were, you know, making sure that kids in their yes. communities got breakfast and got books. Right. Um, Right. You know, yes. black <laughs> movements are rooted in love and liberation and helping people understand that. If every white person who listens to this can tell five of their white friends that black movements historically and currently are rooted in love and liberation. Yes. You know, and, and, and take yourself on on a learning journey. Yes, love and liberation. That's what I'm talking about. Now, if you want more insight from Debbie, she has a book called Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. After the break, Damali will talk to Rochelle about what it was like to hear one of her closest friends describe the recent protests as a war zone. That's next. Stay with us. Hey, y'all, before we jump back into our episode, I want to invite you to be part of our show. 
If you want to be a guest on this podcast, email us your story at do the work at three uncanny four.com with the numbers spelled out. So that's do the work at three uncanny four.com and tell us your story. Or you can call us with your story. Drop me a line at 973-922-3345. That's 973-922-3345. And now let's get back to the show. We're back. All right, y'all. In just a moment, we're going to bring Damali and Rochelle together to talk. But first, as always, let's recap their story. So Damali and Rochelle are both women of color and entrepreneurs, and they're best friends. But when the Black Lives Matter protests peaked after George Floyd's murder in May, Rochelle sent Damali a video and text that really bothered her. Rochelle was driving down the ritzy Fifth Avenue in Manhattan after a night of protests. She saw high-end stores boarded up and guards everywhere. That's when Rochelle texted Damali, this looks like a war zone. Now, Damali was shocked. She could not believe that one of her best friends seemed to care more about property being destroyed than Black lives being killed. Damali needed to tell Rochelle what was on her mind. In October, my producers called up Damali and Rochelle on video chat. They were both in their home offices in New York, as any fierce businesswoman would be, and they were both dressed to impress. We started the conversation by asking Damali to take us back to that moment when she received those texts from Rochelle. When I got that message with those images, I had also received it from some other people. Um, and, you know, people who I kind of, you know, thought, oh, well, you know, they don't get it. They don't understand. Um, but when I got it from Rochelle, I was just like, no, <laughs> not Rochelle. Like, no, it's like when, you're, when your heroes do something and you're just like, why did you say that? You're right. I couldn't move past it. And I'm able to move usually past things because I'm doing so much that I can just redirect my attention and do something else. But I couldn't move past it because we talk so much. We spend so much time like together thinking about each other, you know, and the opportunities for each other um, as businesswomen and friends and people in, in this world that I just was like, I, can't, I just, no, I can't. <laughs> I can't move past this. As for Rochelle, she had no idea what Damali was thinking in that moment. You know, I didn't know. Um, I, I didn't know um, the, that perspective on Damali's part. I was always just like, oh, my God, look at this. Oh, my God. this da, 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 da. And, I, and I didn't realize that there was, when I was sharing these photos and videos with her, I didn't think I was insensitive to the fact that it might have an effect on her or what was going through her mind as she was seeing all of this. It didn't even register for me. So I just sent it and said, it's a war zone <laughs> without thinking, um, without thinking beyond that. Cause I was also in a state of shock myself. Tamali's ever so gracious and very professional. She is a difficult person to read. I forget exactly what she said, but it was more along lines of, you know, that might be a stretch. And then that's when I caught myself, and I know myself, I can be dramatic. 
and have an overactive imagination. And so I immediately caught myself and I said, yeah, you know what, you're right. This is not a war zone. Like, we're not having a war over here. So Rochelle agreed with Damali that Fifth Avenue in Manhattan was not really a war zone. But she did tell Damali that she was still really upset about the looting that happened to her neighbors, many of whom were small business owners just like her. Thank goodness no one came into my store. I felt so thankful about that. But my neighbors had been looted. And that really angered me because we're small business owners. <laughs> you know, we're, we're already dealing with huge loss in revenue. And now to deal with, with our shops being, um, being broken into and damaged, it just adds another level of stress to us. For Damali, this was really hard to hear. She couldn't believe Rochelle was focused on the looting. The protests were in response to the murder of innocent people, which was way more important than the destruction of property. So Damali decided to school Rochelle on some U.S. history. And I remember saying to her, when did you, when did you come here? When did you come to the U.S.? When did your mom come here? And I think that was like a random, it seemed like a very random question because I think she was like, huh? And, and, and I said, because I want to kind of walk you through the laws that allowed for that to happen and what triggered the drafting of that legislation, because these are the same types of things that were happening, the protests, the sort of calling out certain acts of local and national and federal government. She educated me and she shared this with me and I learned something. <laughs> I just thought, wow, I, you know, there's so much that I take for granted. And it takes a good friend who's going to stop and be like, look, let me tell you something, girl. <laughs> let me share something with you so you know a little bit something. And I was like, oh, my God, you're so right. And I think I made a joke of it. And I said, it's kind of like what Black Panther did for crazy rich Asians. That's exactly what you said. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I understand what you're saying, Damali. In my head, because I'm just happy-go-lucky and optimistic, I'm like, it's like when Black Panther came out. And they're like, wow, there is a way to make money. And because Black Panther was such a hit, a blockbuster hit that had revenue dollar signs, they really opened the way for when Crazy Rich Asians came. And so Diwali's educating me on social issues that have happened in the past, and I'm equating it to Hollywood. Oof. Yeah, that's a little different, girl. But Rochelle said she likes to look on the brighter side of life. And she shared with Diwali where that outlook comes from. I'm not blind to the suffering that has happened in the past. I choose to focus my energy on that happened, and now here's the happy version. And between the two, I choose the happy version because it makes life easier for me personally, because it is a fight. You know, I, I am a woman entrepreneur. I am a person of color. I am a minority. I am an immigrant. And every day is difficult. And if I always had to think about all the difficulties that we have already overcome, plus the difficulties I still have to face today and tomorrow, I don't know if I could do it. I have to keep a positive mindset. I have to, to be hopeful. Otherwise, it's a tough world out there. It's a really rough world out there. 
really rough. I don't feel like I have the luxury to do that. I'm a very optimistic person, but my ancestors fought really hard to make sure that I can enjoy some of the basic privileges that I enjoy today. Last night, we went to vote and we took our children. Uh, my boys are six and eight. And I'm sitting there explaining to them that this is something that we weren't always able to do for no other reason than the color of our skin. And, you know, I voted, my husband voted, and I asked the volunteer if, you know, they could put the actual ballot into the machine, if that was permissible. And he said, yes. I said, can I take a photo? And he said, yes. And so now I have these photos of my boys that they'll have and be able to look back on being able to vote, um, which is huge. You know, if you think about just, you know, a few decades ago, we couldn't vote. And a few decades before that, women couldn't vote. And so it's hard for me to only focus on the positive things without also thinking about what went into making that possible for me. And at the same time, thinking about what legacy I want to leave for my children and their children. Hearing Damali tell that story, Rochelle got to understand her a little better. For you, the connection is so tight. It's so tight for you. And so you're experiencing things. And by you sharing that experience with me and the world and and the public or your circle, then I can feel a little bit more connected to the story because I'm so disconnected by the nature of my skin and where I was born and, and the world that I live in. But when you said that whole story of voting, you know, this, the, the part that I keep in my brain is your son dropping the ballot in the box. That's like the happy moment for me. And then I just remember that part and I'm like, look at that moment of possibility. And then the seed that is now the future for his children and grandchildren, right? So it's blossoming. Damali could see where Rochelle was coming from, but she still hoped that because Rochelle was a person of color like her, they would be able to understand each other on a deeper level. I know. I feel like I I want to believe that there is this invisible thread that connects all minorities, you know? And the more things you have in common with the minority, I, I, I hope, I want to believe that there are more strings connecting you, right? You know, the similarities is is the struggle. Um, And the only difference is what kind of struggle it is, right? So she talks about uh, the the history and what happened here in America, and that's a struggle. My struggle was leaving my country and coming to America (laughs) and then, like, doing something. You know, she's fighting her own battles that I'll never have to fight because I don't look like her. And I'm fighting my own bag of battles that, that she'll never have to fight because she doesn't look like me. But we come together and you're like, did you kick ass today? And she's like, yeah, I slayed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it, you know, and that's our friendship. <laughs> and we come together and we talk about, you know, hardship and how much, how difficult it is. And then we have a glass of wine and we laugh about it. That's the way that you unite people. I think like if we focus on all things that we don't have in common, then of course we could like find ways to like sit on different sides of the, you know, proverbial table. And so I feel like this is just another situation where, um, you know, we had a great conversation 
it was like, okay, put it, we put it into our treasure box of all the great conversations that we've had. We take away the positive from it, like, you know, kind of extract that positive and then keep going. There's a ton of space in their treasure box for more conversations. And when that fills up, we'll just get a new box. Right, Rochelle? Yeah. Tomorrow you can educate me as much as you can. <laughs> and I'll continue, I'll continue saying things. Sometimes I say things without thinking or whatever. But then you, you say, you know, if you care about someone, you say what you mean, but you don't say it mean. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. You say what you mean, but you don't say it mean. Damali then reflected on how having this conversation with Rochelle had changed her. Sharing with Rochelle, I kind of left my comfort zone a little bit of kind of living in the middle, right? And I felt like it was in that vulnerability that we were able to kind of to go deep into this conversation um, where we both walked away learning something. And so I, I felt like I learned that sometimes I have to, you know, take my neutral mediator hat off and just put on my Yankees baseball hat um, and, you know, be vulnerable if I want to have, you know, kind of, if I want to have this kind of conversation and, and walk away with these types of lessons. Yeah, girl. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love when Damali comes out and plays. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. <laughs> That's the effect we have on each other. This is true. This is true. That was so beautiful, y'all. See, this is why I love doing this show, because I love how they listen to each other, learn from each other, and have each other's backs. And that's something we can all strive to do better at in our own relationships. Do the Work is a Three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, Brandon Kyle Goodman. Our in-house educator is Debbie Irving. Our senior editor is Amy Eason. Our senior producer is TJ Raphael. Our associate producers are Rahima Nasa and Sharina Ong. Catherine Shoemaker is our development producer, and Jenny Kim is our production manager. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. Special thanks to Adam Davidson and Nuna Sharafadeen. The show was mixed by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. Ava Amabehi is our fact checker, and Elishaba Itoop created the theme. If you like the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. And hey, why not leave a rating and a comment while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Or better yet, tell somebody about us, honey. And if you want to have your own story featured on the show, email us at do the work at 3uncanny4.com. That's with the numbers spelled out. So do the work at 3uncanny4.com. Now, I hope y'all are taking care of yourselves as we deal with these heavy conversations. One self-care tip for me is drink your water. Stay hydrated. Now, I drink a gallon a day, which I recommend for you, but that might be a lot to start with. So just a couple glasses, but hydrate yourself, honey. It's so important. It'll keep your skin right, too. You'll be glowing, baby. Just drink your water. Just drink your water. 
Oh, and one more thing. We're putting some handy resources on our website in case y'all want to do some reading up on the topics we talk about in the show. So you can find that at dotheworkpod.com. For 3 Uncanny 4, I'm Brandon Kyle Goodman. Until next time, you can find me on the gram at Brandon K. Good. Thanks for listening. <laughs>